Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm author and journalist Laura Price, and you're listening to Life in Food, inspiring stories in bite-sized pieces. Each episode, I interview a different guest about how food has helped them through some of their biggest challenges. With a different theme each week, we look at everything from food and love to food and friendship, food and family, and even food and grief. This week's episode is Food and War with Alyssa Timoshkina, cookbook author who co-founded the Cook for Ukraine initiative, which has raised almost £2 million for relief efforts from the war in Ukraine. Alyssa is a writer, a historian and a chef who published her first book, Salt and Time, Recipes from a Russian Kitchen in 2019, and who hosted a podcast called Mother Food, Conversations that Nourish the Modern Mother. She started the supper club Kino Vino, pairing dishes with films, and has now extended mother food into a food service for new mothers. Alyssa has lived in London for more than 20 years, but she grew up in Russia and has explored Russian cuisine in her writing and recipes. In February 2022, when Russia began its war on Ukraine, Alyssa teamed up with her longtime friend, the Ukrainian cookbook author Olya Hercules, to co-found Cook for Ukraine using the language of food to raise awareness and funds for the humanitarian crisis. We met in May 2022 when Alyssa and Olya won the Champions of Change Award from the world's 50 best restaurants, and I was lucky enough to interview the two women during a film shoot cooking Ukrainian dumplings at Olya's family home in London. One year after Russia invaded Ukraine, I'm speaking to Alyssa about food and war and how she and Olya have fought the violence and conflict with food and love. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to Life in Food. Thank you so much, Laura. It's such an important conversation to have. It really is. And I appreciate you've had this conversation with lots and lots of different um, media over the course of the year and you must both be so exhausted. So I really appreciate you finding the time to speak to me too. No, absolutely. It's so important to keep talking about it. So I'm super grateful to you for inviting me to speak about this. Thank you. Well, could you start by telling me about Cook for Ukraine, what it is and why you and Olya set up the initiative? Of course. Um, So Cook for Ukraine is a fundraising campaign which uses food and the hospitality industry to uh, raise funds for various charities that uh, work on the ground in Ukraine. Um, it started um, pretty much the same evening um, as Russia invaded Ukraine. And um, the idea was inspired by a really beautiful initiative called Cook for Syria, which uses the same 
uh, principle and the same model. Uh, so one way is to encourage people to use social media to spread um, knowledge and exchange recipes um, inspired by Ukraine or recipes from Ukraine, and then through that to encourage people to donate. Uh, the other way that we get people on board is to invite them to host various uh, food events. It could be a, a bake sale, a supper club, uh, a pop-up, and again, cooking Ukrainian dishes and um, using that money um, to raise funds for the charity that we work with. And finally, we also work with restaurants where they add um, an optional donation or um, a Ukrainian-themed uh, dish to the to the menu. And um, again, all of that money goes towards our fundraiser. And how can people get involved if they want to help? Um, well, again, it can be as simple as um, checking out the Cook for Ukraine hashtag on Instagram and joining that conversation um, and sharing the donation link. Um, you can take it a step further and um, host a supper club. Uh, you can host a Ukrainian-themed dinner. And instead of um, inviting people to bring something, you invite them to make a donation. Um, and of course, you know, if you can't, for whichever reason, if you can't kind of go to the lengths of um, cooking and posting and hosting, then just donate. It's as simple as that. And what's the website to donate? Uh, the website is uh, cookforukraine.org. I'll put that in the show notes so that it's um, super obvious to everyone where they can go. Um, and am I right in thinking you've raised about two million pounds so far? Yes, you are. Um, we are probably over that now because we have um, three different charities that we work with and it's kind of putting all the kind of telling up the different uh, income streams, not income, but you know, the, the funds. Yeah. Um, and I think overall it is over, just over two million. Now. What an incredible amount to have raised in less than a year. Um, but also obviously it's, it's not enough, is it? You know, there's, there's so much help that is needed for the people in Ukraine. The war is ongoing and people just need to dig deep and, and donate and get involved in this initiative in whatever way they can. So for someone who has never eaten Ukrainian food, what's it like and what are the key dishes? So um, I just want to make it, uh, be transparent and make it clear that um, I would not identify as Ukrainian. And unfortunately, I've never actually visited Ukraine but I do come from a family with Ukrainian heritage. So on my mother's side, um, it's a bit of a kind of complex um, net of different kind of ethnic identities, but it is mostly Ukrainian. Um, and I was raised by my Jewish-Ukrainian great-grandmother. So this is my direct um, kind of lineage and my direct experience of Ukrainian food. So this is the perspective from which... I am talking and I can talk about Ukrainian cuisine. Of course, Olya would be a much more um, esteemed or <laughs> experienced <laughs> person in Ukrainian cuisine. But my personal experience of Ukrainian cuisine through my great-grandmother and the recipes that we have inherited from her um, is, of course, borscht. It's an absolute classic. And um, in my family, borscht, I mean, borscht is 
originally a Ukrainian dish, but it also is cooked quite widely in Eastern Europe. Um, in Poland, for example, they also have different versions of borscht. The borscht that I grew up with is a beetroot soup. Um, so my great-grandmother would make a very rich um, kind of wintry version with meat and um, lots of root vegetables that are fried uh, in a rich broth, um, al always served with lots of fresh garlic, um, smetana, which is uh, sour cream, and um, dill if, if it is in season and available. And then my mom would often make a lighter version, which would be more like a kind of a summery or spring borscht, which is vegetarian and it's just the vegetables and it's a lot lighter and the broth is a lot um, kind of clearer. But again, it would be always served with uh, garlic, sour cream and fresh dill. Mm, so, so, so delicious. I confess, I have not cooked my dish as part of Cook for Ukraine yet, but I'm going to make it borscht. I'm going to make it a vegetarian version. So I'm going to look for one of your recipes and, and hopefully make make a good job of it I don't know I'm not a very good cook <laughs> um so you touched on it a, a little bit then but you and Olya Olya Hercules that is have an amazing connection an amazing mix of Ukrainian and Russian identities so how did the two of you meet and what are those shared backgrounds that you've got um so Olya and I met um oh gosh must be 15 years if not more now uh, we were doing our master's degrees in uh, Queen Mary University of London in my land. We were both part, we were doing different degrees, but we were both part of the um, humanities and modern language department. Um, and there were lots of crossovers in the way um, you would know, have joint lectures or we'd have the same tutors. Um, and I believe we kind of knew of each other, but we properly met <laughs> smoking outside of our department, as <laughs> one did back then. And um, we spoke the same language, um, which was Russian at the time. And, yeah, we just kind of started chatting and we immediately realized that we have this um, kind of uncanny parallels in our lives that um, my part of my family is from Ukraine, but they came to Siberia. And Olya's is exactly the opposite. Her grandmother on her father's side is from Siberia, but she traveled to Ukraine and ended up living there. So we have this kind of mirror family histories, and that's something that's always fascinated us. And we ended up um, initially working together in the cultural film and cultural sphere um, for about four years or so. And then um, we kind of lost touch for a few years and then found each other again when we both have been um, changing our careers and both felt drawn to the sphere of food. And you didn't she come to cook at one of your supper clubs? She did, yes. And again, it um, uh, kind of makes sense really looking back now that we started Cook for Ukraine because our first professional um, partnership together in food was also a fundraising event. Um, it happened in 2015, just a year after the war in, in the Crimea region and the Donbass region started. Um, so Olya has just released her first cookbook, Mamushka, and she was doing lots of um, awareness raising through her cooking and the book. And I've launched my Kinovino Supper Club so our first event together was a Ukrainian-themed film and dinner, um, which, again, we used to raise awareness for the crisis that was unfolding in Ukraine back then. 
And we've cooked so many times since then, both privately at home, but also for various events and various fundraising initiatives. So yeah, Cook for Ukraine was really a really natural continuation of that partnership. Yeah. And you've spent a lot of time together this year, I imagine. Yes. Um, so I know Olya has family in Ukraine still, um, and you have connections there as well, I think. What's the situation as we speak and how, how is Olya's family doing? How's her brother doing? And and just to caveat, we're recording in December, but this is going to go out in February. So obviously, I know the situations change as well. Gosh, yeah, it's quite nerve-wracking to think where we will be in two months. And life has been so unpredictable that it's really hard to kind of paint a picture of something knowing that it might change any day. Um, well, again, it's a bit difficult for me to speak kind of on behalf of Oli in this respect, but um, having spoken to her only recently, I know that um, her, her brother is doing well. And, you know, in general, I, I know she shared quite a lot, both to me, but also on various podcasts podcasts and at various talks that her brother is a real source of strength to her mm-hmm. even though he is the one kind of technically speaking in a more difficult situation physically of course but mentally as well but she says whenever she speaks to him she gets this charge of real positive energy wow. and she, you know it's really amazing to see that despite all the difficulties those people are going through the morale is really high and the sense of unity is um, really strong, which is so inspiring to see. Um, so her brother, Sasha, he's in Kiev in the territorial defense. And her dad, um, he recently, so her parents, her, her mom and her dad are from the Kherson uh, region, um, a small town called Kachovka. Recently, it's been on the news, so it's amazing to see how even small rural parts of Ukraine are becoming, you know, almost part of everyday conversation amongst mm-hmm. people, at least here in the UK. So that's where Olya's family is from. And um, as we know, sadly, Kachovka and the whole of Kherson region have experienced some really horrendous <clears throat> kind of aspects of the war. I mean, the whole war is horrendous, but specifically in those regions where they're really trying to suppress and kind of violently conquer those territories. Um, Olya's parents were um, threatened, so they have left through a very difficult journey in April. Um, But lately, um, her dad felt that he can't stay in Europe and just watch the news and do nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. And he is, you know, he's in his kind of mid-60s. He has some health complications but despite all that, and of course, despite his family's pleas not to go, he went back. Um, and he he can't go back to Kherson, of course, but he's in the Mikolaev region where his sister is. And he is already, he's started some um, volunteers group. He's raising funds. He got a minivan and he's sending, you know, he's driving around delivering humanitarian aid and aid to the army. Um, So he's really busy and he's feeling great. Again, Ole recently posted on Instagram saying that she spoke to her dad for the first time since he left, actually, um, for for, um, the reasons of, um, you know, as we know, Russia is attacking all of the power infrastructure. So 
energy supplies are quite sparse, so she wasn't able to get hold of him on the phone. Uh, finally, when she spoke to him, he was in really good spirits, but you know he was wearing a hat and a coat while being indoors, and that was obviously a very wow. difficult thing to witness because, as again, um, the question of energy and how people in Ukraine will keep warm this winter is a really, mm. really traumatic one. Yeah. And is it right that Sasha's doing something with food in with the army? Yes, I think his um, jobs are varied, but one of them is cooking. So uh, he sent Olya some really lovely um, videos of himself cooking. And um, I was I work for Channel Four on and off as an interpreter and uh, kind of re- doing a bit of research. Um, and we even ended up using one of the uh, videos of the man. It was back in the summer, one of the uh, videos of the man um, having a little barbecue and, um, you know, grilling meat and making some food together, which was a really beautiful, beautiful thing to see. Yeah. Um, you're obviously not there in Ukraine right now, so you cannot speak for, with, from first-hand experience but what what is from from what you know and from what you've heard through Olya and her brother what is food like in a war zone um what happens in terms of shortages and do they have to be extremely creative in terms of how they eat and how they cook based on what's available um well it depends on where you are in Ukraine and um depends on whether you are under the Russian occupation or whether you are in the free territories. Um, a good friend of mine who is um, a well-known Instagram foodie, but also she is a, um, a journalist at, at Channel 4, um, Felicity Spector. She went to Ukraine a few times recently or to, to the free territory. So she went to Lviv and Kiev and Odessa and... Um, she was saying, and she was posting a lot of pictures of herself in different food settings and of the food in different cafes. And um, she said she received quite a lot of kind of angry comments saying, why are you sort of being so fetishistic about the food when, you know, showing that things are so normal and posting mm. cakes when there's a war going on? But actually, you know, this is the reality. She was there um, during the wartime, but actually, Life does go on, and in many places that are not um, under direct occupation from the Russian army, um, there is a sense of normalcy where people do go to the cafes and they do enjoy their cakes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was quite, to me, it was quite moving and quite um, reassuring to see that. Yeah. But of course, if we think about um, areas that are closer to the uh, to the front and you know the where the active fighting is happening and not not to mention the um the horrors that are happening under the occupation um the situation is very different um and i know again from my experience working at channel 4 where i helped um, where i translated so many interviews with people from mariupol um i mean it's just done believable and it's really hard to wrap your head around that this can be happening in this day and age where Mm. i mean you know the horrors of people having to drink water from their radiators let alone you know there was literally no food um but there were equally moving accounts of um you know houses getting together 
um, when there is no electricity or gas, they would cook. And then they, you know they would start an open fire in the courtyard, and um, everyone chips in and brings whatever they have, and they cook together. And there were these, um, in a way, beautiful improvised communal kitchens outside where people would mm-hmm. cook together. And um, you know, to me, that was probably something that really, from all the stories that I've heard, and the you know, thanks to social media, you can see the videos. I think that's something that really um stuck with me the idea of that communal kitchen and cooking on the fire together and there's something of course absolutely devastating about it but at the same time it really spreads that idea of community and literally the fire and the food being the heart of your community and how people come together around it is quite powerful and very moving yeah and it captures the essence of of what you guys are doing as well from London and you know getting people together over food to try and create peace in this time of war before this war began the russian food scene the russian restaurant scene was really kind of growing and blossoming and i had the opportunity to go to russia a couple of times uh, right before the pandemic and experience this amazing restaurant scene it seemed that since the 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 russian sanctions that i think started in 2014 Russian people have been growing their own produce because they they couldn't import produce from abroad. And there was this really wonderful food scene growing there. And of course, now that to some extent, I guess, has has ended or at least the international aspect of it. So how have the, the Russian chefs and restaurateurs and producers and farmers been affected by this war? The, the war has happened in a very, I guess, interesting kind of, time for my professional journey um i was supposed to start working on a new cookbook mm-hmm. um traveling through russia kind of <clears throat> symbolically recreating the trans-siberian express journey well symbolically and physically as well um so i've spent at least a year um before the start of the war um kind of completely immersed in research and um meeting various people online. Um, and yeah, I mean, the picture that has I have created or, you know, that kind of grew out of my research was a really promising one and a really inspiring one. Um, there's definitely this huge uh, trend. Um, I mean, that we see here as well in the UK, which I think is great. Um, the kind of the return to... Um, kind of pre-global style of cooking mm-hmm. so kind of local um locally grown going back to history maybe resurrecting some kind of lost cooking techniques or lost grains and so on which as i said is a really wonderful thing but it's something that i've always felt um there's kind of a tone of something kind of obsessive or unhealthy around that approach in Russia and I actually um, I was writing a piece for this really wonderful um, independent um, arts journal called Calvert which sadly decided to stop uh, working since the beginning of the war Um, and I was writing a piece for them about that revival of old Russian cuisine in Russia and how kind of yeah, how ideologically confused and problematic that revival is because it is tinged with a real 
kind of Western phobia mm. and a real sense of, again, that superiority that there's this great Russian cuisine that needs to be discovered, even if it's being super anti-Soviet, how the, you know, famously, um, what's his name? Mukhin, I forgot his first name. Vladimir. Vladimir, yes. <laughs> Vladimir Mukhin, who's the... Um, White Rabbit. Um, White Rabbit, a restaurant um, chef, and now he's opened a whole host of other restaurants. He famously, in his Netflix, uh, you know, really goes to town <laughs> in describing how revolting and horrible Soviet cuisine was, which, again, is a very sort of bizarre and healthy way of seeing um, food instead of... Um, but anyway, I'm not going to go <laughs> too far into <laughs> that. But, you know, even though there was some really exciting, really fascinating things happening... To me, it seemed like it has this, some kind of undertone of something quite unhinged mm. about it. Um, and then when the war started, I was following so many different accounts from chefs to bakers to um, restaurant owners. And I stopped following so many of them because they just acted as if nothing has happened. Yeah, And to be honest... To be perfectly honest, I really don't care how they're doing right now. Um, I'm still in touch with some people. And again, you know, I'm obviously choosing to be in touch with those people who share my point of view. Mm. And those are the people who are have either fled, who had the opportunity to do so, or who... Um, kind of withdrew into kind of this internal immigration and they still cook and they still do their arts and culinary stuff but they you know they don't really take part in in any kind of anti-war stuff but at least they're not kind of pro oh look we've got this new recipe and look how great things are and it just it just doesn't make sense to me so mm -hmm. I kind of distance myself from that field at the moment. I mean, presumably there are a lot of people who are afraid to share, you know, who do have these anti-war opinions, but they're afraid to share anything for fear of what will happen to them there. Yeah, yeah. Though um, there's this really amazing um, baker that I've found, again, on Instagram. She's in Moscow, uh, quite a young woman, and she is, um, I mean, she's like she does these really kind of bright-coloured, uh, cakes, um, which initially were just kind of challenging the social norm. They would have kind of feminist slogans of them or, mm. um, you know, can, yeah, something kind of out of the con conventional kind of stuff that you would see on the cake. Um, but then she, she started making lots of pro Ukrainian and anti war stuff, which is amazing. And she's still doing it. So it's really incredible how some people are not afraid, <laughs> even if it's a yeah. small thing like a, you know, a latte with a yellow and blue heart on it because you mm. can get arrested for that as well, but she's yeah. still doing it. So there you go. Great. Good on her. And yeah. uh, that reminds me of Dinara Casco as well, the Ukrainian cake maker who's been been doing some great things to raise money for, for people in Ukraine as well. Yeah. Um, and so what's happening with your cookbook? Because obviously you had that that idea commissioned before the war started are you still working on a cookbook? Have you changed your idea? Yeah, so I've changed my idea um, and I'm still in the process of kind of fine-tuning that with my publisher. I still want to do something in 
in connection to the food that I grew up with. But in a way, you know, it's it's interesting how I guess our brain kind of adapts to change. And now I'm actually looking back, I'm really grateful that I wasn't able to do that book because um, the amount of learning that I've done this year about myself, my identity, what do those national labels actually mean to me, um, about the history of Russian-Ukrainian relationship, about Russian imperialism. And, you know, and as I've said, I, I do have a PhD in, in that kind of field, but still... Mm -hmm. You know, the amount of stuff I didn't know or wasn't aware about is really astonishing. So I'm, I'm really grateful for that kind of traumatic journey that I've taken this year um, because I feel that now if I were to come back to that same idea, it would be much more kind of honest and even like politically correct mm. <laughs> kind of uh, approach. And I still love that idea of exploring the cuisine of the territory that is currently occupied by a political entity called Russia, but it's not Russian in any way. And I mean, that was a huge part of my initial idea anyway. You know, I've done quite a few interviews remotely with people and my key questions, like a little questionnaire, my key questions were about their ethnic origins, the food they grew up with, you know, what food do they mm -hmm. associate with home or what, what do they perceive as Russian cuisine and the beautiful kind of cocktail of different ethnicities that was created through that already made me think of, you know, almost kind of as a revolutionary statement that there is no such thing as Russian cuisine, mm -hmm. or at least like not a kind of homogenous monolith concept. And I really want to delve more into that and explore, give voices and explore specifically the so-called minorities that have been residing on that land way before the concept of Russian Federation or Russian Empire was created. Um, it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's so many fascinating ethnic um, groups that live in Siberia and the Far East, but equally in the Western Russia, um, you know, the Jewish population is you know spread all over the place and they have such fascinating cuisine depending on the region so yeah that part of the world still really fascinates me and it's something of course that for better or for worse used to be my home that's where I was born um but yeah I don't think I would want to um kind of celebrate Russian cuisine or culture in any way at the moment no there's probably not that much appetite for that internationally no, at the moment either no. but I remember you saying uh, when I spoke to you last May that you felt conflicted about giving those people a voice uh, and I guess you've you've sort of um your thoughts on that I guess have become a bit clearer as the year has gone on and you're sort of honing your idea around it yes yes definitely that's been a lot Sounds- of soul searching and self-analysis yeah it sounds super interesting though what you're talking about in terms of you know celebrating the the cultures and ethnicities and the people that make up this this area whatever we call it this territory um just to go back to the war when the war started last february it was all over every news channel every newspaper and then the coverage dropped off um understandably in some ways because we we know we talk about fatigue people don't want to hear about war and and people dying every day but what can we do to help bring the war back into the conversation and to to help people you know to kind of keep up efforts to help people in Ukraine well I don't know if this is going to be a little rant but um is it just in light of the recent headlines and the front covers of all newspapers which were Megan and Harry's bloody Netflix <laughs> show. Um, not to get sidetracked by that, to really remember to zoom out and kind of see the bigger picture and put things in perspective because it's so easy to yeah, get sidetracked and get carried away um, by whatever editors decide and I mean, it's obviously a much more complex thing. It's not just mm. the editors who decide and dictate what goes into the front pages of the newspapers or any kind of browsers and news portals. Um, but yeah, to just kind of constantly have, you know, a small place for Ukraine in your heart and in your kind of brain and in your thoughts. Um, you know, yeah, I was particularly kind of outraged with everything that's still happening in Ukraine the atrocities in Iran, and you know, all we care about is Harry and Meghan. Really, I mean, it's just astonishing. But, um, but at the same time, I mean, I completely understand that we can't. Maybe a very small percentage of the population can have that incredible energy to be dedicated nonstop. I mean, it has been almost a year now, and of course, it's impossible to sustain the kind of high intense level of engagement for that long. I don't think just 
physically we can do that. But I guess also, you know, you, you don't always need to be aware of every element of the news and, you know, exactly what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. But, you know, if you can find a path into that subject, you know, whether it's through food or literature, you know, there's so many other wonderful events, at least here in the UK. Um, there's always some kind of concert or some kind of cultural activity, cultural event that's happening. And yeah, you don't need to look at images of the war all the time. You can just read a Ukrainian poetry book or watch a Ukrainian film, cook a Ukrainian dish, but just, you know, keep connected to that subject in any way you can. Are there any Ukrainian restaurants in the UK or in London that you'd like to give a shout out to that people could perhaps visit? Yes, there's a, a new restaurant that opened, um, I can't remember one exactly, but in the summer, I think. It's called Mriya, which means a miracle in Ukrainian. Um, and it was opened by a chef who has been a friend of the Cook for Ukraine campaign, uh, Yuri Kovrizhenko. He's, um, he's been in the UK um, before the war started and was kind of stranded here with his partner. And they lived in the Ukrainian embassy for the first couple of months, and, you know, because they were in this very, their visas had run out and they were in this very kind of confusing, you know, war refugee status. Mm. Um, and it's been really amazing. So we have um, worked, you know, kind of, he has supported the campaign, we've supported each other's work. And it's been really amazing to see him open a restaurant in a relatively short space of time. Um, so, and he hires Ukrainian refugees and all the ceramics, all the artwork. I think like as much as possible, they literally um, employ everyone from Ukraine or somehow connected to Ukraine. So it's a real celebration of Ukrainian culture, but also of Ukrainian culture in, in um, exile at the moment. Um, they are based in West London. So yes, I, I want to give a shout out to them. Fantastic. And it's been a year since the war started. What have you learned in that time? Oh, gosh. <laughs> so much. It really has been... I mean, yeah, of course, you know, after the pandemic, you kind of... I'm wary of saying this has been the most significant year because who knows what next year will bring. And I'm saying that equally with fascination and with fear mm. um but oh gosh i don't know i've i've learned so much from um a more kind of straightforward sense of learning i've i've um learned a lot more ukrainian <laughs> language Great. um because i grew up in um a family where ukrainian words were really common and we kind of spoke so many ukrainian words but i wasn't actually aware that that was Ukrainian I just thought it was some kind of our family <laughs> as a kid I wasn't really aware of that I thought it's our family words um, so this year I've made a very conscious decision to learn Ukrainian um, I've learned so much more about Ukrainian history and culture um, and the intricacy and complexities of um, Russian Ukrainian um, relationship um, but also I've learned that there there's so much kindness and just how i guess just the depth of human of humans 
mm. mean, human soul sounds a bit too kind of Russian literature, Dostoevsky style. But um, yeah, there's definitely something really amazing to learn about people and the way they come together and the strengths and the ability to feel the pain of others and to feel compassionate, uh, but also to act on that and actually make, um, you know, feasible change. I think I've really learned how important it is to act. I, I think it's really important to feel, to be compassionate, to educate yourself, but also to actually make visible difference is so important. But sadly, equally, I've learned just how abysmal humans can be too with all the atrocities that kind of never imagined to be able to see as current affairs um yeah it's been it's been a very difficult year in terms of yeah just kind of challenging one's perception of what people are capable of it's been such a difficult year and I can't imagine what it's been like for you. How have you found time for you, Alyssa, for your own mental health and, you know, just to kind of take yourself away from the war for a little bit? Yeah, I have to say I did reach a complete burnout at one point because I've obviously just kind of delved into cook for Ukraine and everything that was happening in Ukraine with my work at Channel 4 and I think after four or five months I just realized that literally I just can't uh, continue I just could literally feel myself experiencing you know some kind of a form of traumatic um, response and I have a four-year-old daughter um, so I've made a decision to you know give myself permission to switch off and take some time off and um, this is something that Olya and I have spoken to each other at length because she's a mom as well. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a balance of it's, it's really admirable and amazing to do all of this humanitarian work. But if you have children and you're leaving them behind and you can see that your relationship to your child is starting to be affected in a not in a positive way, through that it's absolutely okay to take a break and refocus um, on your immediate family and um, I um, heard this really lovely um, thoughts from a meditation teacher who said um, by um, genuinely loving and caring for one child you in a way love and care for all the children in the world at the same time and and um i think remembering that really um yeah i managed to give myself permission to take some time off and just enjoy being with my daughter mm-hmm. and um and yeah i think like the other thing that i've kind of learned and um that kind of really became important to me is to the way I communicate with my child and to be as honest and truthful with her and Mm -hmm. to yeah she's only four but I, I feel it's so important to start showing her by example but also by reading about other people um 
how much your voice and how much your actions matter. Yeah. And, you know, even though I haven't been sort of actively maybe doing anything for Cook for Ukraine for some time when I decided to take a break, um, I feel that I still, hopefully, <laughs> still managed to uh, pro- pro- project or to um, instill some kind of good values in my child by speaking to her. We always talk about Ukraine and she's mm. always very concerned about the children in Ukraine and she brings some drawings from nursery saying that I drew something for the kids in Ukraine. Obviously, to her, she doesn't have that clear understanding because mm. we, we haven't actually been, you know, apart from Olya's family, uh, we haven't really interacted that much with um, people who have fled. But I still feel very proud <laughs> that um, she, even at four, she's aware of what's happening and that she, she cares about it. Yeah, no, that's amazing and so important. And like, I absolutely echo your own thoughts that you have to take time away from everything you're doing. Like no one can keep up the pace of, you know, dealing with such a heavy, awful, difficult subject for such a long time without taking breaks. And, you know, sounds like everything that you're doing with your daughter is just, you know, making her into this wonderful little young woman. So you should be absolutely proud. Um, and just on on that note, you started your wonderful podcast, Mother Food, during the pandemic. I know you haven't been continuing it, but I did notice that you started a Mother Food London Instagram account and you're now helping other new mums with food. Um, will there be a return of the podcast and, and what's happening with Mother Food? Yeah, it's interesting that yeah, it's kind of like, it's they seem like two completely opposing interests but maybe they are in fact more connected than i imagine them to be you know so the, on the one hand i have this work with cook for ukraine and my personal kind of intellectual interest in you know kind of history and understanding the nature of dictatorship and wars and mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff yet on the other hand i'm really passionate and very um kind of dedicated to parenting to the experience of mothers and women on their fertility journey um in their birth and postpartum experience but in fact maybe those subjects are more connected you know again Mm -hmm. Olya and I spoke a lot about it that you know you as women I think there's something really important um about the work that we do specifically because we are women and of course as we know um, you know, dictatorships and horrendous wars are products of patriarchy and man-made concepts. Um, so there is something very powerful in, you know, it's almost like a sign of social protest that women give life, no matter how much destruction uh, of life people like Putin and his supporters and his regime um, create. So yeah, I think to me, perhaps when I reached the point of burnout, when I just had to kind of refocus and nurture myself a little bit, um, I suddenly felt this re- rebirth of this interest for motherhood yeah. and uh, a real kind of urgency in it as well. So I'm yes, I'm I'm putting a list 
of people I'd love to interview. And yes, I'm, I'm planning a new season. I don't know when hey, and how. Hey. <laughs> yes, but I'm, I'm definitely going to do another season. And then in terms of mother food as a postpartum food service for new mothers, it's a really new thing. Um, and it's just again, part of my own journey that a close friend of mine just had a baby um so I've been helping her and just being around a newborn baby there's something so beautiful and peaceful mm-hmm. about that um so that kind of gave me another wave of um determination and um, interest to pursue this um so yeah I'm kind of balancing two seemingly (laughs) very different (laughs) projects but you know at the same time of course cook for ukraine most um most of the humanitarian aid that the charities that we work with um it goes towards women and children so that's also very important to us um so yeah i think in a way that kind of core of caring and mothering um it is in both projects yeah totally yeah it all links in I think all all of our work does tend to link into each other in some some crazy way it's kind of what happened with me in this podcast is like bringing my worlds of kind of speaking to interviewing people with amazing stories most of whom are women and then interlinking it with food and stuff so I'm looking forward to your your next season of mother food I'm a I'm a stepmother now of three three wonderful girls two of them are two of them are teenagers so um I've got a lot to learn about cooking and (laughs) caring for children um so we're going to finish off now with the quick questions that I ask everyone on this podcast your relationship to food fuel or pleasure pleasure favorite meal of the day dinner name one meal that always makes you feel happy Gosh, I think oh, there's so many. It's so hard to something soupy, noodly, dumpling, something mm, yes. like that. One food that has healed you. Oh, I think oh, just the experience of cooking in general has been really healing in my personal experience. Probably making borscht recently. Um, it's it's been it's been one of those really special. It was, I mean, nothing special about the setting just at home, but that experience was one of the most memorable <laughs> interactions mm. with food I've had. I think everything is special about the setting when it's home. I think home is the most special setting. Um, one dish that reminds you of family. You know, I've caught myself thinking that uh, whenever I cook something, I guess from the Eastern European repertoire, um, and it could be it could be so many things but you always start with the kind of like a sofrito of uh, frying onions and carrots in unrefined sunflower oil and maybe with mushrooms or dill that base can then go to become so many different things but just that moment when you're um, frying the carrots and the onions and they start to soften and that scent that to me is is home Oh, wow. One recipe that everyone should know how to cook. That's amazing. Um, Gosh. (laughs) Well, I'm obviously sticking with Eastern European vibes. (laughs) Um, I'd say um, 
well, I'd say dumplings in generally, but especially if you go down the route of Eastern European, either Polish pierogi or Ukrainian vareniki, mm. that just, oh, those are just the best things. Yes. Your best meal ever. Um, as in the one that I've had or a dream? Kind of. it, it's up to you. Usually it's one that you've had, but if you've got a dream meal, then I'd love to hear it. I grew up in a very small family, um, so we never had those kind of massive gatherings around the table. But I guess we compensated uh, with friends. <laughs> so to me, I think just the idea of the, just the best meal would be a big table. And I think maybe that's kind of, I went a bit, you know, kind of the extreme version of that in my supper clubs when you have a table of like 60 people one long table <laughs> so that kind of image of one big table and then again a kind of eastern european uh, style of um where you have lots of different dishes on so the table will be just full again you know it's very meze or tapas um full of small dishes and then you know you're constantly passing plates around and something that you're Mm. dipping you know lots of bread and fresh um, herbs and yeah lots of lots of people and glasses proper feast that sounds wonderful finally some food for thought what is the one piece of advice or the one kind of thought you would give to anyone in terms of food and war well I just want to briefly if we have the time um, to go back to my um, Jewish Ukrainian great-grandmother and to me, her her life and just her as a symbol, it does really encapsulate those two concepts. Um, you know, she was born in 1912, so she experienced the uh, Soviet Revolution and the First World War and the Civil War, uh, the pogroms, the Holocaust, you know, the amount of famines, Holodomor, you know, ast astonishing, you know, she was kind of like representative of the 20, 20th century and the history of the 20th century in Eastern Europe for me. Um, and, you know, someone who's experienced severe trauma, she never openly spoke about um, mm. in detail. I mean, bless her, she did speak enough for me to grow up with that sense of respect and reverence for that history um, but she never kind of, in you know, didn't go into detail of just how difficult it must have been to live through a famine so many times over and over again. Um, you know, to, to live through wars. Um, but the one thing I've really kind of absorbed from her is a real love of feeding. Sorry, I'm getting really emotional yeah. again. Um, Take your time. It's, you know, it's really... Kind of really beautiful in a way that um, human spirits can't be extinguished through mm. war. And to, I guess, you know, obviously food can be just a means of survival and, you know, you eat to just survive... Um, and her cooking was never particularly elaborate or unusual or some, you know, those 
it was very basic, kind of classic Jewish, Ashkenazi, and, and Soviet uh, repertoire of dishes. But because of her role in our family, she really was the feeder. And yeah. and um, and I don't know whether, you know, how aware of it she was and, and you know, how much pleasure and how much joy she felt having lived that life that she can then cook a meal for her great granddaughter and her children um, and you know gather everyone even though a small family but gather everyone around the table and cook for them Um, I hope she did I really do Um, but that kind of simple pleasure of eating it can be something small and kind of unremarkable and you know in kind of quotation marks but to really retain that pleasure of eating Mm. um and I'm not religious at all and I'm quite in fact quite kind of passionately anti-religious but I kind of get the point of saying grace before a meal and I kind of do it in my own way of course and not not praying or anything like that but just pausing for a second and just arriving to the table and I think in in regaining and retaining that pleasure and that appreciation and reverence towards food um, no matter where you are and the setting in which you're eating is a really powerful counteract towards the violence of war you know and the aim of a war to turn us to strip people of their humanity um but if we manage to retain that reverence and gratitude towards fools then i think the project of war can never succeed wow uh, i mean that's just so so powerful and i think you've you've just summed up everything that i that i think about food and love and how well it goes together and how important it is and I don't know it just everything that you're doing is just so wonderful and powerful and the message that you've you've just got across there as well is is so eloquent and really special thank you (laughs) Alyssa how do I say thank you in Ukrainian (laughs) sorry say again yeah Alyssa thank you so much I know it's been emotional for you and really really hard and you know there's just so 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 much going on and so much pressure and um I just really appreciate it I'm just absolutely honored to have you on life in food and to talk about your experience to talk about your family to talk about your wonderful what what was her name Rosalia Rosalia yes well, and thank you to Rosalia as well. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna make the borscht. I'm gonna learn to make some dumplings, and I'm gonna raise a glass to to you and to Olia and to Rosalia as well. Thank, thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Wow, that felt like an incredibly powerful episode to end on, and that brings us to the end of Life in Food season two. I am massively, massively grateful to Alyssa and to all the guests on this season who have taken their precious time to talk to me. I think Alyssa's episode really sums up the power of food and how we need to use it to express our love, not war. 
If you'd like to help with Alyssa and Olia's efforts to support the people affected by the war in Ukraine, please do head to cookforukraine.org and visit Alyssa Tomoshkina on Instagram and Twitter. I've put the links to her website, her social handles, her brilliant podcast, Mother Food, and even her recipe for borscht in the show notes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and make sure you subscribe so you're first in line to hear about season three. You can also support me by buying my debut novel, Single Bald Female, and subscribing to my newsletter, Donuts for Breakfast, on Substack. All those links are in the show notes, along with my Instagram handle, which is Laura Price Writes. I very much hope to return with more episodes soon, but for now, a wholehearted thank you for listening to Life in Food with Laura Price. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.